One of the founding principles of Second Baptist has been that Second loves kids. It's at the heart of Dr. Young's ministry. And I just want us to give God another round of applause for the decisions. The almost 2,000 volunteers that gave their time to teach kids in the summer what it means to know Jesus. It's just been a wonderful week. Let's, let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to be gathered here because we can think about you. All week long, we hear the stories that break our heart. We see the ugliness of the world, but you set aside this time when we can remember and celebrate who you are and anticipate what's to come. I just pray that by your spirit, there would be that sense of excitement. In Jesus' name, amen. Late one winter, I was walking through the Marienplatz in Munich. It's what they call the town square, but it is gigantic. It's where they have the famous glockenspiel. Tourists will stop and watch the figures come out as the clock changes. It's almost a mile long in the pedestrian way right next to it from the victual market to the end. There's a couple cathedrals in there, a fountain. It's just amazing. And because it's so big, there'll often be some street performers in various parts. And, and this evening, right in the corner of the Marienplatz, right before the Victual Market, I saw this crowd. They were clapping. They were ooing. They were aahing. I thought, man, I got to check this out. So I go in, and I, I look through the crowd, and there's a guy sitting there holding an accordion. Now, I, I don't want to be <laughs> insulting to some of you that like the accordion or play it, but I've always thought of it as sort of a cheesy instrument, maybe more of a toy than an instrument. But then I heard this. He has no idea all these people are clapping for him. I, I will never, ever make fun of the accordion again. It's like he had a symphony in his lap. It was a brilliant performance, and I almost missed it. Because of my prejudice, what good can come from an accordion? But a group of people that were celebrating him, that were honoring him, that were clapping for him, made me think, Gary, put your prejudice aside. There might be something here that you've missed. Can I suggest that to our culture today, God is a little bit like an accordion? Quaint, embarrassing. If he's brought up in polite conversation, let's change the subject quickly so things don't get weird. But a group of people who honor him and who celebrate him can awaken an apathetic world and say, maybe you ought to give this Jesus a second chance. If there's so many people that think Jesus is so worthy of celebrating, there might be something here that you haven't seen yet. It was sort of my college experience. Lisa and I went to Western Washington University in Bellingham, Washington. It's right below the Canadian border. And it was known as one of the largest party schools in the nation because it was only about 20 miles south of Canada. Students would come down even from Canada and join in. And Friday night was the biggest party night of the year. People would be getting high. They would be getting drunk. They would be hooking up. 
But there were about 400 of us that gathered in the school's largest lecture hall for what was called Friday Night Fellowship. There would be 45 minutes of this intense celebratory worship. It was wonderful. And the speaker would go for about an hour. It would be a couple hours where we just setting aside that time to celebrate and get to know Jesus. And it astonished some of these other students. I'll never forget one woman who came in and she was just, she was amazed. She goes, you know what? I don't know if I believe yet, but I know these people do. Just look at their faces. And she was trying to figure it out because all around it, she knew what was going on. People were getting high, drunk. Some were probably getting pregnant. And yet here are these college students celebrating and worshiping Jesus. And when we celebrate God, when we realize that that is one of our key purposes, we can awaken an apathetic world to the wonder of Jesus that we've come to know. But I think the church has lost its purpose. When I look today, the church isn't known for what we celebrate. We're known for what we're against. You ask almost anybody outside of this, what are Christians about? Well, they hate those people. They hate this. They say don't do this. They hate that. We become known by what we're against, not what we're for, because we've lost the purpose that we are set aside to celebrate, first and foremost, who God is. When I talk about purpose tonight, and I'm, I'm, this morning I mentioned the purpose of the church, some of you might think, Gary, I've got a mortgage to pay, a job I'm trying to find, a family to raise. The purpose of the church is about the last concern I have on my mind right now. But if you'll just suspend your disbelief for about 25 more minutes, let me ask you, what if the church's purpose should be your purpose? What if you want a life that counts, a life of impact, you want to realize that what God calls the church to do is what he calls you to do. And if you don't understand that and what it is, what if you wake up one day and realize you've spent your entire life fighting battles that don't matter? And at the end of your life, realize you miss the one battle that really does. We have time, I only get 30 minutes here to talk about all the purposes of the church, but there are two central purposes that I think are largely neglected today that I want to talk about this morning. And that is that the church, the purpose is to celebrate and anticipate. Celebrate and anticipate. Beginning in the Old Testament, we're told that God sets aside a people and their purpose is to celebrate him. Look at Psalm 149.2. Let Israel celebrate its maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Isaiah 12.4 has become a life verse for me. I keep it right next to where I study to remind myself this is what life is about. Not to make an impression, not that anybody would remember me in any context. It's this. Proclaim his name, celebrate his works among the peoples, declare that his name is exalted. And I just can't tell you, getting this, is, this is my purpose to celebrate his name, remember that his works are remembered and his name is exalted, it just changes things because otherwise, living in a disappointing fallen world, I can start to focus on what's wrong with the world instead of what's right with my God. But my purpose isn't to point out to the world how it's failing. My purpose is to celebrate God and let the world see there's something better than what they're focusing on. 
which is why I've mentioned this a couple times up here, but it really has been life-changing for me. I'm going very slowly through the Bible again because I'm, I'm literally annotating everywhere in the Bible where God describes himself. This is who I'm called to celebrate and know. I just want to know. And so I've now got over 60 pages of notes where the Bible is directly saying, this is who God is. Not who others say he is. It's who God says he is. And it is so powerful for me every day to begin my day remembering, Gary, this is the God you worship. Celebrate him. I just want to give you an example from the book of Exodus. It's not seen as a book that really is all that into celebrating who God is. And I don't have time to give you every instance in Exodus, but just think how powerful this is. Just from the book of Exodus alone, what we know about our God. From chapter 2, 24, we know that God hears the groaning of his people. And from chapter 3, verse 7, that God is concerned about his people's suffering. I love that. If you're hurting, God hears. He sees. But more than that, he's concerned. Okay, that's encouraging right there it gets even better because he can do something about it. We're told in chapter six that God's hand is mighty. In fact, the Lord is my strength and my defense. He's become my salvation in chapter 52. The Lord is a warrior. This is is amazing how I face this day. God hears, he's concerned, and he's big enough to do something about it. But he's not just about me. I don't wanna reduce God to just this is me. I also realize that he's majestic in holiness awesome in power, working wonders. He's all of that in transcendent ways, but he's still relational. He's a God of unfailing love, but he's not just relational. He reigns forever and ever. This will never end. He's highly exalted, but all of this, and he's the God who heals me. He reigns forever. He runs everything and he can heal little individual me we worship the compassionate and gracious God who is slow to anger abounding in love and faithfulness who forgives wickedness rebellion and sin let me just ask you a question when you look at your news commentary programs in the evening if you do how do you feel emotionally what does it do to you If you scroll through social media late at night and then you shut it down, what does that do to your heart and mind? What does it do to your heart and mind when you read through this list and you just spend a couple minutes? This is the God we celebrate. This is amazing. But it's even better because we celebrate God not just because of who he is. That's reason enough to celebrate him. We celebrate him because of how he treats us. This amazing God is a merciful God. And that fuels our celebration. I want to say something in particular to the younger people here. This is not just relevant for younger people by any means, but I've seen Satan use this to try to pick young people off one by one. And I just want to expose this lie. Because here's the the tension we live with as believers. We celebrate Jesus. We love Jesus. But can we be honest? Sometimes there's a part of us that kind of likes sin. And so we do the sin and we say, oh, I can't do that if I celebrate Jesus. Jesus, I promise I'm not going to do it again until we do. Okay, I'm really not going to do it again. And, And then we do. And if this tension goes on for a while, Satan will let it play out. But here's what's going to happen. I just want to prepare you for this lie. Eventually, Satan's going to whisper, you know, you're weak. 
let's admit it, you like this sin. Maybe this Christianity stuff just isn't for you. It works for other people. It works for him. It works for, maybe it's just not for you. Can we just admit that that it's not for you? Can I show the lie behind that? It's because we are weak that Jesus is especially for us. You get that? It's because we are so weak that Jesus is especially for us. A sinner has no dearer friend, no greater refuge, no greater love than Jesus. And in one sense, don't take this the wrong way, but in one sense, our sin actually fuels our celebration. Because it reminds us that God has made a provision for our sin to remove the shame, the guilt that comes. It's why Jesus says, those who are forgiven much do what? Love much. Young people, never let your sin chase you from God. Let your sin push you toward God. That's the truth. That's the God that we celebrate. A God of mercy. Because when we see our worst, we celebrate God at his best. This holy, perfect, righteous God who still loves us with infinite patience, infinite mercy, and infinite love. Celebration is to the church spiritually what eating is to the body physically. Celebration is to the church spiritually what eating is to the body physically. Some academics will warn that the greatest threat to marriages today of apps is Facebook. Because people hook up, you know, with old Boyfriends and girlfriends. Look, I work with real couples. Facebook isn't the greatest threat to marriages. Yelp is. It's Yelp. Because some people think that other people's opinions actually matter. And my wife is one of those. She goes, well, these got bad reviews. I go, well, look, I love these books. And then I go on Amazon. They get trashed. And then people on Yelp say, well, customer service stinks. I'm thinking, well, maybe you were a jerk to the servers. I mean, if I don't know you, why do I care about your opinion? But I've worked with couples where I realized Lisa and I aren't the only ones that have a disagreement on this. There's this one premarital couple, and my wife just fell in love with the wife-to-be. She goes, isn't she just adorable? So she's adorable by Lisa's definition. If I were to describe the guy, he's an engineer, right? That's that's sort of the, the, the personalities. And so she would get hungry. She'd say, honey, babe, I'm I'm getting hungry. And he'd say, oh, okay, time for research. And he opens up Yelp and spends 90 minutes trying to figure out where they should go. And she gets hungrier and hungrier. Well, this has 4.9 stars, but that's 4.7. But this one's better customers. And until finally she becomes not what she calls hungry, but hangry. Do you know what hangry means? You're mean, you're surly, you just want to bite something, all right? I mean, you just, you're so, fr- and he was, he's clueless and he's oblivious. I said, look, because it kept coming up. I said, look, I want to help you out. We're doing 10 sessions here. You're going to forget every one. I'm going to preach a sermon at your wedding. You'll forget, you'll remember none of it. I want to give you six words for a happy marriage, all right? Look, people pay me for these words. I'm giving to you for free, all right? So just six words. Write this down and hold on. Are you ready? He goes, okay. All right, here it is. If you love her, feed her, all right? If you love her, feed her. Life is not happy with a hangry wife and it's so easily fixed. Just get some food in her and she won't be mean and she won't be angry and everybody will be happy. It's okay if it's a 4.2 star instead of a 4.9 star. Just get some food in her. 
Well, what happens to us physically with food happens to our souls spiritually without celebration because we're surrounded by ugliness. We're surrounded by people who hate, who are prejudiced, who are all of these things. And that starts to be all that we see and we forget. We become mean and vindictive and angry and it's us versus them and everything begins to fall apart. And we won't represent the Jesus who for some reason, though he stood for righteousness, was the kind of man that a prostitute could come into a religious gathering, fall down at his feet, weep over his feet, and dry him with their hair. It's not the kind of church that people think we are because we've lost our purpose to celebrate. But it's not just celebrate. How do we keep the celebration going? That's the second purpose of the church, and that's to anticipate. We celebrate and anticipate. We don't celebrate as individuals. This is so key, and I think this is one of the least understood truths of the Christian life for most believers that I talk with today. Something amazing happens after Jesus. In the Old Testament, you hear about saints. You've got this one stood with God, she walked with God, this one was powerfully used by God. All of these individuals, but after Jesus, think about this, after Jesus, every time the word saint is used in the New Testament, it's plural. Just think about what that might mean. If the word saint is used in the New Testament, it's plural. Because there is a corporate holiness that God is looking toward. Because God says that his design is to look at his people like his bride. He sets it up in the Old Testament and then he, or, and then he unfolds it in the New Testament in such a powerful way. Let me just give you um, some examples of that. Isaiah 54, 5. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. This was so unheard of in Old Testament times that a God would say, I'm going to be your husband. It would be border on bizarre, but then he repeats it. Isaiah 62, 5, then God will rejoice over you as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. Or Hosea 2, 19 through 20, I will make you my wife forever showing you righteousness and justice, unfailing love and compassion. I will be faithful to you and make you mine. These are romantic words. And what it forces us to do, invites us to do, is that what is the purpose of everything? Not just the purpose of the church, not just your purpose. What's the purpose of everything? Why are there men and women? Why do they create babies? Why is there a government? Why is there a world? Why was there an Adam, a Noah, a Moses, a David, a Jesus, and a church? It's a natural question, but we never ask, what is the purpose behind everything? What's, what's the point? This is the point. God says, I am planning a royal wedding like you can't even imagine. And all of history is pointing to finally these people who have fallen, they become not just my servants, not just my friends, my very bride. That's what Revelation 19.7 tells us. Let us be glad and rejoice. Let us give honor to him for the time has come for the wedding feast of the lamb. And the bride has prepared herself. That's the doorway to eternity where God says, here's what it's all leading to. It's going to be a great wedding and you're invited. Now, why this has to be corporate, let me just say honestly, 
As a straight man, the thought of thinking of myself as Jesus' wife is not helpful or appealing. Don't want to go there. You don't have to make it weird. It's not about gender. It certainly has nothing to do with sexuality. It's a glorious metaphor where God is saying, think of the most intimate, most giving relationship you can think of on this earth between a husband and a wife. He says, that's how I want to be in a relationship with you. Yeah, I get sentimental at weddings. It just, it just moves me because I'm seeing this couple and, and the bride standing there before her husband saying, I'm giving you everything I am. My body, my life, my hopes, my dreams, everything is yours. And, and, and then the husband-to-be is saying, I, I give you everything. I'll hold nothing back. And, and they're saying, I give you everything I have and everything I am in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's such a, a moving moment. And I know... Can we be honest? They're going to be a little disappointed in the months that follow. I've tried to prepare them. We won't be. After our wedding, it will blow us away. I knew he was beautiful. I didn't know anybody could be that beautiful. I heard the word glory. I didn't know glory could be so glorious. I mean, how can this even be true? And we'll realize this is beyond anything that we could have dreamed of. And so anticipating the royal wedding is, should drive our purpose now. Remembering the royal wedding is coming up is what gives us our purpose today. The best model of this is the Apostle Paul. He's become more controversial even among Christians, which I don't get. But whatever you might say about Paul, he's a man of purpose. I mean, it just breathes through the pages of Scripture. He was allowed himself to be shipwrecked a couple times, imprisoned, persecuted, beaten. He went to a place where he knew he was going to be jailed. And you look at you say, Paul, what's up? What the, I mean, why? You're this esteemed rabbi. You don't have to do this. What drives you? He tells us what drives him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 3, he says this, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. Why? I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul's purpose was to get the church ready for the wedding. That mattered more to him than his comfort. It mattered more to him than his safety and his freedom. Now catch this. It mattered more to him than his own salvation. The way we talk about getting saved, we think that's the highest end. But Paul thought the marriage of the church was more important than his own salvation. In Romans 9.3, he essentially says, I wish that I could be damned if in my damnation, Israel could be saved. He's basically saying, if, if, if somehow my damnation result in Israel be saved, I so want the Jewish people to be a part of this royal wedding. Let me be damned because it's more important than my own salvation. So when Paul says that, he's telling us there's something that he thinks is of supreme importance, even his own eternal destiny. So let me ask you, we're spending two weeks talking about purpose. Is anything more important to you than your own salvation? Is anything more important to you 
than your own salvation? If your answer is no, then your first purpose is you. You're living for yourself. Eventually, you're going to be bored. Why are so many Christians bored? You're not exciting enough to live for. I know your mom might have told you otherwise, and your kindergarten teacher might have told you otherwise. But the reality is, God made us for more than our own purpose. Paul got that. And as long as we're obsessed with where we are, we'll miss that, and our purpose will be focused on ourselves, not on others. When I was in college ministry, without a doubt, the most common question I got was this, can I lose my salvation? I just want to go to the premise of that. That's a kindergarten question. It really is. If you want to live with purpose and passion, stop obsessing about yourself. Be more concerned about the church losing its sincere devotion to Christ. Look, I I know this sounds crazy to a world that says, no, it's just me and God. I don't like organized religion. I don't need the church. I know this is so against our culture, people would laugh, but the reality is if we get this, if you want to live a life of purpose, the church must become more important to me than me. The church must become more important to me than me. Otherwise, why would I give my money to the church? Why would I give my week at the church to bring kids to Christ instead of spending it doing something else I want? Why would I pour myself out? Why would I put my own health at risk? Like like Paul did, if I'm more important to me than the church, everything flows from understanding that. Looking forward to that royal wedding. I want everybody to be invited. I want everybody to get there. And yet I find, I'm just being honest as a pastor, probably 90% of Christians never even anticipate. They don't live in anticipation of the royal wedding. It's all about, God, why don't you do this today? What's happening today? We've lost the ability to anticipate. And when we lose the ability to anticipate, we're not celebrating. And we lose our purpose. We're living for something much less. You want to know why we wear robes at weddings here at Second Baptist, why the pastors wear robes? Now, what I'm about to say, it may be a myth and it may be a legend. I just want to be honest. I'm not 100% true. I I hope it's true because it's a great story. But here's what I've been told. In previous years, a pastor who is no longer here, don't want to besmirch anybody who's no longer here. I don't want to give away his name, but let's just say it's the opposite of old. Okay? Think about it. Okay, so a pastor, no longer here. His name is the opposite of old. Also a great basketball player. Saturday afternoon, really getting at it. He was winning until somebody runs on the court. Hey, pastor, opposite of old. Don't you have a wedding to do? That's right. Sinks a three-pointer, runs up to his office. No time for a shower to put on a suit. Throws a robe over his basketball clothes. Hope that nobody recognizes the Nikes. Gets the couple married. Not 100% sure it's true. I hope it's true. But here's the thing. Imagine that couple. For a year, for months, they're just thinking about that day. They're planning for that day. This is how we're going to spend money for that day. Here's what we're going to invite to that day. That day will set apart their life. They've been dreaming of that day. After that day, they'll look forward to that. That day becomes a defining moment in their life. For someone else, it's interrupting a basketball game. 
Now, I, I wonder if God looks at us that time. He's saying, look, I know you're frustrated with this. I know this isn't to your liking. Here's what I have planned. You're invited. This is going to happen. We're like, yeah, fine, God. I'll worry about your stupid wedding after I finish this game or get this promotion or get this relationship. We don't anticipate what is coming ahead. You want to know your purpose Love the church, serve the church, sacrifice for the church. I see people today, Twitter, Facebook, they, they attack the church because the church isn't perfect. And we all know the church isn't perfect. It's easy to attack, but they do it without passion, without emotion, without love, as if they can curry favor with, yeah, we agree with you. There's nothing good in the church. The church is worse than, than helpful. But the church is Christ's bride. She's still the bride. Not the most beautiful, but still a bride. Imagine someone you love is getting married. Maybe it's your best friend, your sister, maybe your daughter. And you see her for the first time on the wedding day, and you're like, ay, ay, ay. So how do I look? And you want to say, that dress is just not a flattering cut. It looks like two crows have had a fight in your hair. A clown put on your makeup. There might be an uglier pair of shoes in Houston. I've never seen any, but you, uh, would you say that? Not a chance. You would never say that. Even if it's true, you wouldn't say, you'd smile. You'd say, here, let me fix your veil and clear up that smudge. Have a tic-tac and, and, and say, hey, listen to me. He loves you. This is the best day of your life. You are his radiant bride. He chose you. It's going to be a good life. You couldn't have chosen any better. This is the day that will mark you forever. This is a good day. It's not about how you look. It's about him. Look at who you're marrying. As a church, do we, are we known for what we celebrate or what we're against? Do we know for what we anticipate or what we fear? You say, well, how do, I keep how do I keep celebrating in a fallen world where so much is going wrong? We celebrate by anticipating. We celebrate who God is, and we anticipate what he has in store for us. We remember, we're the bride getting ready for a great day with an amazing groom. You might be hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. You're engaged to a hundred trillionaire who could wipe it out and not even know it. You might spend more time in a hospital than at home. You're engaged to the great physician who knows how to heal everything. Maybe not on this life, but he will heal you. You might be overwhelmed by your sin and feel caught. You're engaged to a groom who knows how to forgive and restore and who promises grace. You might be the loneliest person on this planet. And God is saying, hang on. You're going to be a part of the most intimate community in the most intimate relationship that anybody has ever known. And you're invited. 